0: We now return to bringing light into darkness as Scott Ritter talks about the Zaporizhia nuclear plant and its Russian occupation.
1: One of the main arguments for the occupation of the plant is the Russians were concerned that the Ukrainians would seek to use the expended fuel rods that are removed when a reactor is refueled. You put in fresh fuel, you take out the old fuel. The old fuel is still very reactive, very hot. It's put in a cooling pond, and there's various safety mechanisms put in to monitor that. It's covered with a protective shield, et cetera. You could take one of these rods, cut it up, and you could make a dirty bomb. And there was some concern, the Russians had some intelligence that the Ukrainians, at least elements within Ukraine, were at least contemplating this, that they had considered this as a potential to create dirty bombs that could create contaminated areas that would slow down or otherwise inhibit the Russian advance. The other thing is that there was concern, based upon some of the language being used by the Ukrainian leadership, that they may seek to acquire a nuclear weapons capability. And the one thing that makes it a real threat is the reality that in these depleted uranium fuel rods, the process of irradiating them, using them as fuel, the uranium gets converted into plutonium. And there's a significant amount of plutonium in these fuel rods, which under the right circumstances can be extracted, purified and used to make the fissile core of a nuclear weapon. And there was concern on the part of the Russians that the Ukrainian government may seek to do this. So Russia wanted to bring this nuclear material under control, safety. So that's why they occupied the plant.
0: So, Scott, if I could just ask you a question in in the rules of war, and I'm not a big fan of war, but there are certain rules. And it seems to me that it would be to secure those types of entities like a nuclear plant from getting damaged and all these things that you're talking about. I can remember, and I know you are very aware of this as well, but in Iraq, it was shocking to me that when we invaded Iraq, we marched right by the Tawati nuclear plant. We didn't even go in there. We didn't secure it. You know, here we are talking about weapons of mass destruction. That's why we're there. When you've just basically indicated to us in the last five minutes how elements from a nuclear plant like that could be nefariously manufactured into dirty bombs and that type of thing, if that was our real interest, weapons of mass destruction, we would have secured that plant. Can you make a quick comment about that and then return to your your discussion of this particular nuclear plant? Well, I mean, look, you're absolutely right. Uh, first of
1: all, the Tuatha was no longer a functioning uh, nuclear facility. It had been dismantled. But what it did have are warehouses that contained material related to nuclear programs that were being monitored by the International Atomic Energy Agency until they could be disposed of properly. And when we invaded, of course, the IAEA monitoring program was terminated. They weren't there anymore. And there was concern that, there, there should have been concern that people could have gone in there, uh, removed some radioactive material, used it for a dirty bomb, etc. But as you said, we just bypassed it and it was an afterthought. that We went back later and carried out the inventory. But what we did do, and this is in, in line with what you're uh, talking about, is we sent Delta Force and the Rangers on a bold, daring thrust through the deserts of West Iraq to seize the Haditha Dam. Now, why would we seize the Haditha Dam? Two reasons. One, it generates electrical power. So you want to be able to ensure that electricity the ability to generate electricity is in your control. Two, if the dam had been blown up, it would have flooded in a catastrophic fashion Baghdad and the approaches to Baghdad. And there was a concern that the Iraqi resistance forces would would blow up the Haditha Dam. So one of the strategic objectives early on in the war was the seizure of this dam. Now, why is it okay for us to seize a dam? That makes perfect sense. But if the Russian sees a nuclear power plant, that's somehow a crime against humanity. It doesn't make any sense. The Russians did what they needed to do because it is logical military planning that dictates that that is what needs to happen. So the Russians did it. What the Russians didn't do, however, is use it as a nuclear shield. That is the fiction perpetrated by Anthony Blinken in a statement made on August 1st of this year where he accused the Russians of using the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant as a nuclear shield behind which Russia would accumulate heavy weapons, artillery, mortars, tanks, ammunition, and fire on the poor innocent Ukrainians who could not return fire out of fear of creating a nuclear catastrophe. Uh, He then went on to suggest that Russia's operation of heavy weapons nearby Could lead to an inadvertent strike on the facility, meaning Russia would be shelling the facility. And this was dangerous. Now, on August 5th, Ukrainians, picking up on this uh, hint provided by Blinken, it wasn't a hint, it was a coordinated policy, began shelling the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. And everybody, the United States, Ukraine, and all the Western allies jumped in and said, it's Russia shelling the plant. In effect, Russia shelling itself, because the plant is secured not by artillery, not by tanks, not by mortars, but by a 500-man strong contingent of the the Russian Guard, we used to call the Ministry of Interior Forces. It's a military force, and they're used to secure facilities such as this. They they secure uh, missile factories. When I worked in the Soviet Union at Budkensk, the plant was guarded by a Ministry of Interior Force. Today, they would be called the Russian Guard. And the Russian Guard, a 500-man Italian-sized force was brought in to secure this facility. They have light weapons. They have vehicles, but not heavy armored vehicles. And for Blinken to say that they had artillery there, you know, the United States has a history of making accusations against the former Soviet Union, against Russia. When we make these accusations, especially ones of such a uh, dramatic nature, we tend to provide evidence to back it up. Witness the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Soviet Union had missiles in Cuba. Soviet Union says, no, we don't. We go to the United Nations. We provide YouTube photographs that show, yes, you do. You had to admit it. In the 1980s, the Soviet Union shot down Korean Airlines Flight 007, killing 62 Americans, one American congressman. Soviets, no, we did not. We went to the United Nations. We played an audio tape of the Russian pilot, pretty much saying, "I'm shooting down a civilian airliner." The Russians, the Soviets, had to admit, yes, we did it. Tony Blinken comes out and accused the Russians of using a nuclear power plant as a nuclear shield, putting heavy weapons there to fire. This is a massively damaging allegation. If it's true. shame on Russia. The the international community could, in fact, say, hey, uh, that's so irresponsible of you that we need to now demilitarize the nuclear power plant, bring in international peacekeepers to keep you from doing this, if it were true. But it's not. How do we know this? Well, first off, where's the evidence? For a Secretary of State to make that kind of damning allegation and then fail to provide what should be readily available. Ukraine is the single most photographed place in the world today because of this conflict. We have satellites overhead nearly uh, full-time taking pictures. Where's the photograph? Where's the picture? There is none because it didn't pop. And the, the IAEA investigators, now they're on the ground. They'll be able to do a forensic investigation. They'll be able to find out if there's any evidence of heavy weapons having been fired on the territory of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. They'll also be able to examine the debris of shells that have struck, and using old school artillery methods to crater analysis. Go to the craters produced, look at where the fuse impacts in the soil. The fuse impact will provide a hole in the ground. If you stick a stick in the hole, it will point back to where the missile or the artillery shell came from. And I will bet you this, every single hole will point back to Ukrainian Ukrainian territory because that's who was firing the shells, not the Russians. Again, the the story was so absurd that even Zelensky eventually just stopped telling the lie and saying, yes, we're firing, but we have to fire because the Russians are using this territory as a, as a nuclear shield. But they're not. You know what happened this morning? A lot of people aren't picking up on it. As the International Atomic Energy Agency inspection team was traveling toward the nuclear power plant after a meeting with President Zelensky, where assurances were given to them, allegedly, that they would be protected by the Ukrainians on the territory of Ukraine,
0: yeah there was like a commando attack this morning right 100
1: special forces Ukrainian special forces trained by the British launched a commando attack on the nuclear power plant
0: right the
1: goal of which was to seize the power plant and then i assume to invite the inspectors in and then using the inspectors as a shield declare that the international community had to come in and demilitarize the, the area this attack has failed spectacularly the uh, final survivors of these special forces are being mopped up. The majority have been killed. Some have been captured. They will be interrogated. And the evidence of who was behind this will emerge. I think it'll show that they were trained in the United Kingdom by the Special Air Service under the auspices of the Secret Intelligence Service. This was known by Boris Johnson. In fact, it might explain Boris Johnson's sudden visit to Zelensky last week. But I'm just telling you this as, as a former UN weapons inspector, yeah. who planned missions in Iraq where we were prepared to have our team taken hostage and we were prepared to have rescue teams come in and rescue us. So I I know what it's like to plan a mission of this nature. And I know the level of collaboration that has to take place with the military forces involved in your rescue. You just don't go off willy-nilly and do something on your own without any knowledge of this. Mm-hmm. I, there's no way that the IAEA team did not know this attack was going to take place. And the fact that they continued their mission shows that they are a political element. They are not a technical element. I I mean, this is shocking. If they say they didn't know about this, that they're taken by surprise about this, then they have to go back and condemn uh, Vladimir Zelensky for letting them go on this trip when he knew there was going to be a commando attack. At the same time, they were supposed to arrive at the plant. Shocking. Shocking.
0: Let me ask you this, Scott, because this is a really important point and a real, real concern to me and I'm sure many other people. But that was one of my questions. Will the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, will they be honest? What is your prognosis there? I mean, they're going in there to do exactly what they should do, hopefully, which is the forensics of determining where these shellings came from and those types of things, and then to try to rehabilitate or at least get an analysis of the plant safety and all of those things and all the above and such. I mean, we've seen the UN be used in a pejorative way based on the incredible influence that the United States with its financial support for the UN and other Western nations have. You mentioned Boris Johnson very recently visiting with the Zelensky government. And some people have argued that the major thing there was not maybe not necessarily the nuclear plant, but this this offensive that's currently going on in Kirsten that we'll get to in just a second. But just backing up again to the question, what do you think of the ethical or unethical uh, positioning of the IAEA with regards to the honest or dishonest information that we'll be getting from their reports?
1: Well, I think we need to differentiate between, for instance, uh like the Board of Governors of the IAEA. That's an inherently political body, and the director general of the IAEA, who is ostensibly a technician, whose sole job is to oversee the technical work of the IAEA, uh, which is related to safeguarding nuclear material worldwide. The inspectors can only operate under a mandate that gives them legal authority to do that which they seek to do. So the IAEA's mandate in Zaporizhia is purely in a safeguards role. Frankly speaking, if I were in charge of that team, I would not examine a single artillery shell. I would not seek to find out who fired it, what kind of weapon it was, because it's none of my business. I'm not mandated to do that task. I am mandated to go in and look at the safe operation of the facility. I'm mandated to ensure that the nuclear material is Safeguarded properly in accordance with the legal requirements of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the various safeguard agreements that are in place that were put in place by Ukraine, but which Russia has resumed responsibility for by occupying the facility. And so, my report would be 100% focused on: Is this plant being operated in a manner which conforms with the obligations that undertaken under the Non-Proliferation Treaty?
0: Well, let me ask you this real quick, Scott excuse me for interrupting, but but part of their mandate has to be something to make sure that Russia is not using it as a weapon depot, right?
1: Absolutely not. That is just literally not their mission and will never be their mission and should never be their mission. That's the point I was getting ready to make. Okay. If the United Nations decides that it wants to investigate that, then they should have appended to the team a specially mandated forensics team of ballistic experts, of geographical intelligence experts who would be shown intelligence beforehand that demonstrates that Russia did do this or didn't do that. For instance, a photograph of an artillery emplacement. Now you go to that place with your GPS And you do an examination to see if there's indentation in the grounds, if there's any burning on the ground from the artillery, if there's evidence of artillery being fired. And then you can say, we verified that artillery has appeared to have been fired here. Then you do the fragment analysis. You do the crater analysis. The IAEA doesn't have that job description in in, in any aspect of its work. Zero. So why would they be doing this? That's problematic. Somebody said that the IAEA brought with them ballistics experts. Nuclear safeguarding does not require ballistic expertise. Why are they there? What authority do they operate under? These are all very fair questions to ask. Yes, the United Nations should seek to ensure that this facility is not subjected to military strikes. And therefore, if military strikes have taken place, there is a need to find out who did it and why they did it. That's a fair thing, but not for the IAEA. That is not their job. And I would question, look, I'll I'll be frank. Uh, Let's say they came out with a report that was very pro-Russian. They said, no, Ukraine did it. All the evidence points to Ukraine doing this. If I were the Ukrainian government, I'd say, I reject that. You're not mandated to do that job. You have no legal right to do that.
0: Um, What about the issue of at least the reports that the IAEA team, or at least members of that team, will remain there for an extended period of time. It seems like that would be a way to somehow insulate from further attacks.
1: The the IAEA has no authority to demand or dictate anything. An IAEA inspection, a safeguards inspection, is a very carefully controlled thing with very limited objectives and a timetable attached to that. There is no such thing as an IAEA mission in perpetuity. The Russians will tell them to get the hell off the plant when their safeguards work is done. Uh, Russia will not allow a permanent presence of IAEA inspectors unless there is a safety issue that then the IAEA would tell the Russians, this safety issue needs to be resolved before this thing can be operated. But even then, the IAEA would withdraw. Russia would be given a certain amount of time to deal with the issue. And then an IAEA inspection team would come back to investigate whether or not, you know, the repairs have been made, whether or not it continues to operate safely. But the idea that the IAEA on its own volition is going to go into the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, sit there and say, We're not leaving.
0: No, no, I I didn't mean to suggest that. I, I meant to suggest that Russia would invite them to stay as a independent authority as to really what's going on every time there's these strikes and that type of thing.
1: That's a dangerous thing because, again, it's not the IAEA's mission to report on artillery strikes. Okay. Um, it's the IAEA's mission to speak about the technical operations of a nuclear power plant and whether or not it's being done safely. Mm. And the other thing, again, if I'm an IAEA authority, I would tell the Russians, pound sand. My guys don't get combat pay. Mm-hmm. They're not there to, they're not empowered to do that job. What is the legal authority they have to be there? None whatsoever. They're not a peacekeeping force. Why would Russia allow and uh, create an international peacekeeping force? Because that's what the Russians would be doing. Uh, because once you do that, once you give the IEA that authority, then the IAEA takes over that mission. And the first thing I would do if I were the iaea guy is say that I need my own security. You need to demilitarize this facility. I'm going to bring in international security. And, and that just creates a whole host of problems. So Russia will never invite them to stay. Russia will allow them to do their investigation. My understanding is that this investigation will be wrapped up by September 3rd and that the IAEA team will depart the facility at that time?
0: Let me ask you in the very limited time we have left, and thank you for that analysis. There are reports that the United States was involved intensively with this Ukraine counteroffensive that's been going on here in Kherson for the last couple of days. Some people are suggesting Boris Johnson really leaned on them to initiate some type of counteroffensive in his visit, by the way. But can you give us an update on that offensive? We're getting reports or I'm getting reports that Ukraine's getting it handed to them quite substantially, but it seems like they are inflicting some casualties and significant level on the Russians. Can you give us an update on that counteroffensive?
1: I always like the term significant level of casualties. War (laughs) is war, man. People die. And the Ukrainian military is still the largest military in Europe beyond Turkey. 700,000 men under arms right now as we speak and you know when Zelensky talked about a million men he it's not impossible that they can bring a million men under arms they won't be well trained they won't be well equipped but you know you'll have the number a million they, and they've been receiving extensive amounts of modern weaponry from the west tanks artillery and they receive intelligence support logistic support and planning support there's this thing called the ramstein group that sits down and plans the logistics sustainability i believe somewhere in poland there's a nato headquarters that uh, has Ukrainian general staff members assigned, and they do the planning for the war. I mean, this is a NATO war against Russia. Understand that, a NATO war against Russia. And this counteroffensive was planned by the United States together with Ukraine. I think the Ukrainians wanted to do a much broader scale attack. The United States argued for more focused attack. But no matter what, it's a political attack. Let me tell you why. The Ukrainians have, over the summer, built up some reserves, several brigades worth of well-trained, well-equipped troops. And these reserves, if I were the Ukrainians, I would have said I'm going to use them as a strategic fire brigade. So as the Russians continue their advance, anytime there's a breakthrough, we can launch limited spoiling attacks, counterattacks to push the Russians back, stabilize the line, then pull them back. Some of the way the first Marine Brigade was used in the Pusan Perimeter. In the korean war just moving from one point to the next that would be very effective use of these reserves what you don't want to do is squander the reserves in a major offensive action and what's happened here is that the ukrainians have launched this this major offensive action in at least six different points i believe in two of them they actually breached the russian defensive lines that's not impossible you concentrate enough force you bring it with enough firepower and apparently the ukrainians assembled a lot of artillery Much of it Western provided, including the HIMARS, and they saturated the Russian reserve area, where the reserves that would normally be used to launch a counterattack to respond to any Ukrainian attack were effectively neutralized. My understanding is that about 100 Russian soldiers and a couple hundred more were killed and a couple hundred more were wounded. Is this significant? It ain't a little bit, but it's not enough to change the outcome. The Ukrainians penetrated this and with a battalion-sized assault force, battalion-reinforced, Carried out a penetration to the depth of about five to six kilometers. But that's all the battalion can do. You can't do any more with a battalion. And unless you have more forces immediately following up to exploit this penetration, it becomes a death trap. And that's what's happening right now. The Ukrainian forces that achieved these limited gains are surrounded, they're cut off, they're being killed, they're being slaughtered. Any effort by the Ukrainians to reinforce them are being interdicted before they get to the battlefield. You know, we talk about 100 Russian dead, 250 wounded. Uh, the Ukrainians on the first day lost 1,700 killed, 1,700 killed. There's nonstop flow of ambulances going back to Nikolaev and on to Odessa with the casualties. There's so many Ukrainian casualties right now that the hospitals in southern Ukraine are overwhelmed. And there's the, talk about the need to emergency medevac wounded to Romania, to Germany, to Europe, because the Ukrainian medical system can't handle this. That's what's happening in southern Ukraine.
0: Very good. Thank you for that update. Hey, listen, we are out of time and what an outstanding array of, of analyses you presented today. I want to thank you so much for making time. I want to remind our listeners that we've had the great privilege of the analysis of a weapons inspector, writer, lecturer, former U.N. weapons inspector, Scott Ritter, Marine. Left the service, joined the United Nations back in the 1990s, and is famously known for providing the only truths among the question of weapons of mass destruction, among a U.S. government and mainstream media campaign of lies that led us into the illegal and immoral invasion of Iraq, a war crime that resulted in a million dead. Tell us real quick about you. You got like a regular gig going on. I call myself Inspector Clouseau. But you have another show called Inspect. Tell us a little bit about how people can access information from you. Know,
1: <laughs> I have, a, I have a, a Telegram page, so I post anything I write. Or, for instance, when you send me a link to this, this broadcast, I'll post that on on the show, too, so, so people can access it. And then I, I do a, a weekly show with, a, with an old friend of mine, old colleague, uh, Jeff Norman. Uh, called ask the inspector and uh <laughs> it basically you know when every time i write an article or i do a show like this uh, people who listen or read they have questions yeah. so this the idea was to create a uh, hour long forum where we take questions from the so called audience you know and 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 do it in in a more relaxed manner it's not lighthearted we understand the seriousness of the situation but we also don't want to pretend that we're we're more important than we are we're we're simply two people who are talking about the issues of the day and, and opening up to uh, questions that other people might have. And, and the an- the questions are serious. The answers are serious, but the entire format is, is, is more relaxed because to be honest, by the time I do this program at the end of a long week, I'm exhausted. I so mean, the I last mean. thing I want to be is Mr. Serious. Well, listen, a thank- in a bar with a beer in his hand answering
0: uh-huh. questions from his friends sounds good I, I actually listened in to one of the shows i found it very entertaining the only thing i was missing was the beer which i'll get next time <laughs> um, but anyhow thank you so much for your time scott we'll stay in contact and continue to follow your work and still got so many more questions that would appreciate your inputs on so thank you so much for your work Well, thanks for having me See you next week. And don't be late. Also, we need you to switch on over to the internet if you're not already there to access Lost in Paradise. Coming up next on 91.7 KOOP. It's a show that evolves around laid back grooves, both old and new. Nothing too slow or fast. Enjoy your time with Chad D. As we do every show, we take you out with Land of Naivety. See you next week.
1: Check out the